Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 22nd, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's often said that children need to develop certain social skills, like learning how to communicate with others and how to make friends. But what's at stake if these skills aren't learned? A child may never gain confidence, and that loneliness and anxiety could follow him or her into adulthood. Today, parenting coach Caroline McGuire joins us. She's the author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. Are you a parent who worries about this for your child or children? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Author Caroline McGuire is joining us today via Skype. Uh, Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. I'm curious uh, to start off, what prompted you to write this book, Caroline? So years ago, when I first started working with children and families, I kept encountering the fact that if children don't have services through school, um, they really get no help with friendship. Yet, as parents, we face this constantly. Constantly, we have to talk about friendship. And I encountered a little boy who was asking me why no one would play with him. And it, it just struck me that Kids are not concerned about academics. They're not concerned about um, a lot of things we as adults are concerned about. They are concerned about, you know, feeling comfortable in their own skin, where to sit, what to do. And so I started looking for a guide for parents that's user friendly, not full of jargon. And I couldn't find anything. And, And it started to strike me like, what if I could write that and give that to parents? You mentioned that uh, some children receive services through school, but often uh, when they're evaluated, it's for a child or children that may have uh, high needs. But there's a lot of kids that maybe fall in between. Is that who this book is for? Absolutely. This book is for both the children who have high needs because their parents are also on the front lines trying to carry things through into daily life. But really, there's millions of children who fall into you know, the the awkward, shy, quirky, it's not working out, we've moved too much, and so now things are hard. And just, you know, all those phases of life that we can all remember, where making a new group of friends or fitting in with people is really complicated. Uh, we all remember, uh, especially if we're adults, uh, that uh, at some point in our uh, childhood or adolescence, things were awkward. And at some point, um, many of us may have struggled. Uh, when you were writing this book, why is this book more uh, relevant now than, than ever before, Caroline? Well, I think we are facing sort of a national crisis around um, you know, social media and devices. So parents are really struggling with that eroding social skills, kids with their face and their phone all the time. And I also think we are also looking at um, record depression numbers for kids. Unfortunately, you know, record numbers of suicides. And there's article after article in, in the zeitgeist about um, 
anxiety in children and stress. And so I feel now parents are under such pressure to answer these concerns and help their children, but yet they had no playbook. And so parents are really struggling without that information. Uh, I have two children um, myself, and oftentimes getting them to even tell you about how their school day was is a challenge <laughs> because uh, they don't always want to talk about school or want to recount the day for you. So I, I guess the, the first step, Caroline, is how do parents get their children to talk to them so that they know if they're, uh, are, if they're struggling uh, with social skills or even making friends? Absolutely. So one of the centerpieces of Why Will No One Play With Me, um, and I have more about this at my website, carolinemaguireauthor.com, including videos, um, is this open-ended questions of coaching, which is basically that you ask questions, not an interrogation, but, you know, what's going on for you? What does friendship look like these days? And you ask questions and you sort of reflect, you recap what they're saying. And what it does is it sort of neutralizes things and it creates a lighter feel to the conversation and it gives parents a communication technique, frankly, to talk about anything hard. Because you're right, um, often kids have trouble opening up or even remembering why they're in a bad mood, right? The mood started you know, at 10 a.m. when someone wouldn't be in a group with them, and then it just carries through and you get the kid who, you know, kind of explodes at you or says they're fine. And so part of the methodology while no play with me is to teach parents how to have those conversations so that you can find out the genesis of, of the mood you're facing. Uh, what about, uh, obviously, teaching a parent how to talk to their child, uh, depending on their day is important, but you know, how often should parents be reaching out to maybe other adults that are in their child's life, whether it's a, a teacher, a coach, uh, maybe their dance teacher, in terms of seeing you know, what else is going on with their child when, when a parent is not around? And then how do you, I guess, balance that so that you're not uh, becoming a helicopter parent, so to speak, that you're uh, intruding to too much. I absolutely hear this all the time where parents are so concerned about becoming helicopter parents. Yet when I work with schools, schools are so often saying to me, we didn't know how bad things were. We would love to have helped. So I would urge parents to reach out in a non-dramatic way and tell the teacher what is going on, tell the school, tell the coach, and say, you know, I have a kid who doesn't talk much or I'm trying to get a lay of the land. And my, and actually, why don't I play with me even has scripts and, and ways to do this. And my experience is that teachers don't take this as you're a helicopter. They take it as everybody needs information. The other tip I have is siblings, if they're not going to make fun, if they're going to be supportive, cousins, family, friends, if you know a teacher in the school, because I think we do need that crucial information. Um, you know, many of the kids I work with, when we do this, we find out that the child is not even going to the cafeteria, right? They're going to the library, they're skipping lunch, they're skipping social opportunity. And you as a parent are being told, oh, I go every day. <laughs> so you don't know. <laughs> 
You're hearing Caroline McGuire. Uh, she's a author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. She's joining us today uh, via Skype. Uh, Caroline, besides being an author, you're also an executive function and social skills coach. So let's also start there when we talk about executive function. Uh, what do you mean and how does that play into what we're talking about today, which is helping children uh, learn uh, to handle themselves in social situations and to make friends? Absolutely. So executive function is the management system of the brain. It is the hub of the brain. All the processes that control attention, planning, organization, self-awareness, all of these are executive functions. So they affect both academics and also they affect social. And so one of the things that has evolved in the sort of academic world and professional world is that we all kind of know that these processes affect everything and that we can develop the skills and strengthen those executive functions if they're weak. And many times when kids have struggles socially, they don't read the room, they're, you know, their tone isn't great, they're too much or too little. It's all about those executive functions. And we know from all kinds of research that we can develop them. And that's really the basis of why will no one play with me is my years of work and research and um, how to strengthen those in your child or teen um, without it being you know, something that you have to search the earth for the answers. It's all right there. Uh, we talked about uh, learning how to uh, communicate with your child, especially if they uh, don't want to uh, share with you the details of their day. Uh, but you, talk a little bit more about when you were working with particular clients. Uh, in your book, you mentioned Jonah, who you said uh, that kind of uh, started the whole uh, ball rolling to write this book, where you know children, you know, they want to not be isolated and they want to be able to to fit in. Uh, but um, you write. If they could, they would. Explain that some more for us. Uh, So, you know, I believe that many times as parents, we get caught in this can't versus won't loop. And we worry about, um, you know, giving in to our kids or that they're being willful. But really, I think that when children can do well, they do do well. And if they're not producing the skills that we need them to, it's usually because they can't. And so, you know, I guess I used to say to mothers and fathers, if they could, they would. And so when I was writing the book, I reached out to many families who I'd worked with over the years, and they all came back to me and said how powerful that was, how releasing it was, that those five words allowed them to say, okay, I I wouldn't expect them to swim without, you know, coaching. Why am I expecting them to do this without coaching? Uh, earlier, you talked about um, with uh, social media, it's easier to become isolated. We know that uh, bullying uh, can be a factor uh, when a child is uh, struggling uh, in school or in other activities. We're actually talking to you uh, in October when it's National Bullying Prevention Month. Uh, just the other day, um, Hearst Me- Connecticut Media reporting that youth suicide rates in our state have almost doubled in a year. Uh, from your perspective, how should we be approaching this, Caroline? Well, obviously, if your child says anything about um, taking their life or self-harm, I I want you to reach out to a medical professional. But I think one of the things that is coming up is that what we're doing to address bullying is simply not working. 
Um, the bully, the bystander, and the victim are all in a situation where they need help from us as adults. They need support. You know, the bystander doesn't know what to do. And so that adds to stress and depression. The bully is bullying because of some unmet need, something that's going on for them, low self-esteem, um, seeing violence in their home, something, you know, maybe their own social skills aren't great. And so they, they lash out. That happens a lot. And then the victim, um, and I was horribly bullied, but I know that when we give children the skills to fit in, they no longer are able to be an easy target. So all of these different parties need help. And I think that as we look at the stats, which you're, you're quoting, we have to do something different. Well, what's the role that schools play in this? Uh, you know, uh, we hear because of these incidents where uh, bullying unfortunately has led uh, to suicide. Schools uh, appear to be taking uh, prevent preventative efforts, um, trying to put forth this uh, anti-bullying climate. But do they have the right uh, skills and resources uh, when you think about the variety of adults that are interacting with our children in school each day? You know, I think schools are trying really hard and I think they are doing much better and really trying to be on it. I, I want to say that first. This is in no way a criticism. But the average teacher is not being given tools to help in these situations. They're not being given support and education. And, you know, everything happens on the bus and on the playground. And just the way the logistics of our academic system are set up it's very hard to get those folks training, yet they are the people seeing things repeatedly. So this is in no way a criticism of our schools, but I know that I have been working with several school districts trying to um, get training for the aides and playground folks and also the bus drivers. And it's, it is Herculean trying to make this happen. Um, and yet, if you ask any parent who's witnessing all this, that's where everything is going on. So I, I hope that as we you know, are looking at things, we will get teachers and educators more tools and support because my experience is that they need it. You're hearing Caroline McGuire, author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. We're going to delve deeper into some of the steps in her book coming up. I wanted to take a call. Uh, Nazarene is calling from New Haven. Nazarene, you're on the show. Yes, hi, good morning. Um, I just wanted to make a comment and, a question, and have a question. My comment is I feel like parents are completely um, are their uh, kids' role models. And if they're not available and, and there's no social socializing happening in their homes, and which is uh, something that is taught through your parents, I believe, um, but there's also not a place for kids to be able to express themselves enough during the day as they sit in classrooms all day long. And I don't think the school's enough is enough place for them to be able to learn that skill. So my question to you is, at what point do we then say, if the school not, is not doing enough, where can we go with our students to get enough help for them for socializing? Uh, great question. Caroline? Um, I love this question. Thank you for asking it. I want to say first, yes, we are our children's greatest role model. And one of the things that I talk about and why will no one play with me is how to facilitate more social interaction within your family. And also, you know, you can be teaching these social skills lessons using your extended family. 
you know, you go to Thanksgiving, there's lots of people watching to read the room and a lot of the lessons call upon that. I think also um, we do have to do things outside of school. And, and that's really the, the reason for the book is that this way parents can facilitate this more um, outside of school where we have um, a great deal of opportunity, but also um, to educate parents and give them support because um, there's a lot to it. And I think that some kids do not learn naturally from role models. You know, I meet many parents and we know this from research who are great socially, but their kid for whatever reason due to ex weak executive function just doesn't pick it up easily. So I think we are role models and then we also are their coach. Uh, we got a tweet from a, a listener uh, who writes, how are the concerns or better yet strategies different for parents raising an only child? And is the data notably different for kids with siblings in terms of how uh, the, they gain uh, social skills, Caroline? Um, so th that's a great question. I'm an only child and um, I speak to many only ch children across the country. And I think um, what the statistics and the research shows us is that children need frequent social interaction, especially unstructured play, even teenagers, unstructured meaning not us, you know, taking them to soccer, but more them playing with someone else. And so one of the things we find with only children isn't that they are, you know, without those opportunities because they don't have siblings. It's really more about do we engage and play with other kids? You can have siblings who you're in a house and you don't even talk to them, right? So it's all about engaging with other kids and getting that practice of play where you learn to work things out and you learn to negotiate and you learn to pretend and use your imagination. Carolyn McGuire is with me again uh, via Skype, author of Why Will No One Play With Me? Uh, she is a social skills coach. We're going to continue to talk with her after the break. And you can join us, too. Are you worried about your child's social skills but not sure how to step in? We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 22nd, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Caroline McGuire. She's a social skills coach who helps parents work with their child to struggling socially. Caroline is the author of the new book, Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. She's joining me today via Skype. Caroline, you mentioned that uh, you were an only child, but you also have another uh, personal connection to uh, what you write about in this book. What was your uh, childhood like in terms of, of how uh, you uh, were uh, adapting to uh, being in school and making friends? So I was sort of an old soul. You know, I was one of those people watching upstairs, downstairs and, you know, reading Agatha Christie novels. I went every day after school to my grandparents' house. So in addition to being an only child um, raised by a, 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 my mom is an introvert um, and she has friends, but she isn't, you know, reaching out. I was with my grandparents talking about World War II. So I was 
a very bookish child and I really struggled, especially because I was in a very small school. There were all these factors. And by seventh grade, I had been bullied pretty badly. And I really had to sort of shift and learn how to relate to other kids. So I had to do some work because I really didn't know what other kids were into. I didn't watch their shows. I didn't listen to what they were listening to. And I had to really change things. And I did thanks to a teacher. So I've been there and I also know how much better things can be. And by the way, I haven't lost who I was. I just have gained friends. You mentioned a teacher helped you. So what did he or she exactly do? And how do you reflect that in your book, Caroline? I reflected in the book by talking a little bit about my conversations with her and just, you know, this need for me to change. And what she did was sort of to have these these weekly meetings with me and to talk to me about observing and really what it, what is it that they are talking about and who would you like to be friends with? And how do you need to kind of speak their language? And it had occurred to me, but it was very empowering to have someone say, you can do this. I think one of the the great things that came out of that is that I really, really relate to these kids. And I also know um, that change is hard and what they're going through. Can you walk us through some steps uh, for parents who may be listening, who want to know, well, how do I get my child to, to move out of his or her comfort zone? A lot of times when kids are struggling with this, it's it becomes sort of the elephant in the room, and it also becomes sort of a flashpoint topic. And that's one reason that a lot of the book talks about how to communicate about this. I would start with questions and chats about friendship that don't mention social skills and don't say, you know, you need these to be improved, but really focus on what they want. The other thing is that a lot of times what we're asking of the child or teen is to exit their comfort zone. So I have a few exercises in Why Will Know and Play With Me that talk about, you know, your comfort zone and what behaviors you do in your comfort zone and out. I would encourage parents to pave the way by starting to talk about comfort zone, talk about your go-tos, talk about your need to get help, talk about things you do that are uncomfortable. And if you don't reach out for help, if you don't do things that are uncomfortable, start to model that. Because when a family demonstrates that we are people who seek help when we need it, it's a lot easier to get the child to move out of their comfort zone. And the other thing is to volunteer, and there's scripts and everything in the book for this, to do something that the child knows are outside of your comfort zone. Um, So a personal example is that my daughter heard me on the radio. She heard me talking about this. And so I am going to run a road race and she's working on some things outside of her comfort zone. And I will tell you, it is very far outside of my comfort zone. (laughs) Uh, Parents sometimes uh, stress out if they uh, offer incentives to their child uh, to go along with their plan or or bribes, uh, so to speak. I mean, how do you approach that, Caroline? So I think that 
we know what's best for our children in many ways, but we have to remember they don't always know. They don't always have the maturity and the self-awareness. And there has to be a degree of what's in it for me, right? Why do you want me to do this change? Why would I exit my comfort zone and what's in it for me? Bribes are when we say, you know, if you stop that right now, I'll give you a cookie. An incentive is something where they demonstrate, and this is all covered in Wild Known Play With Me, they demonstrate something and then they are given some kind of incentive. And the incentive can be non-traditional. You know, if you engage on this, then I'm willing to talk about giving you more freedom that, you know, not a conversation I was willing to engage in before. Parents are very leery too because so many reward charts and things just are really cumbersome. But I think part of this is really that conversation and that collaboration. It doesn't have to be a reward chart. I was thinking uh, to how uh, my children have uh, developed social skills or still developing uh, social skills. And oftentimes uh, it starts with play. You write in your book, play is the first and most natural environment for all learning. You know, from your experience, Caroline, is that's what's missing in school environments today, that child's ability to be creative, to have that time uh, to figure things out where they're not uh, stuck just learning their lessons? Absolutely. We have dramatically cut down the amount of time children play and it is absolutely, you know, the vitamin to help them grow. And we also have a much more structured society nowadays. So it used to be that, you know, in the 70s, you came home and you played outside and it wasn't structured and you played with all kinds of different people, by the way. And then, you know, you went inside when the lights when the lights were gone. And I think that it will be hard to recreate that now, but we do need to give our children more opportunity for play um, because that's actually what leads to um, a lot of the creativity and um, and social skills that we are, are seeking for our kids. But how do we do that when uh, today, as we've talked about, you know, kids are heavily influenced by electronics and Internet? Uh, someone called in uh, to make that exact point. Absolutely. It is, you know, I think the electronics are here and to pretend they're not it is, is really not serving anyone. Um, absolutely. I think that as a family, we have to look at making choices and creating those opportunities. So if your kid is super overscheduled, maybe you retrench a little bit. Um, we know from statistics that is not actually going to affect their college chances. It's really about um, them having the right opportunities. The other thing is that we um, set some boundaries with electronics and engage in really collaborative conversations. Don't just ban, talk about it. Why do you care about electronics? What's different? What are your concerns? And take times when you facilitate that so that they're not, you know, having to make that choice themselves, which is really tough. Jeff's calling from Darien. Jeff, you're on the show. Good morning. Um, you mentioned there's a lot of research that shows executive function can be improved in children and teens. Uh, I was wondering if you could share any insights from that research, and would that process also be applicable for adults that have challenges with executive function? Caroline? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, executive function can be improved over the lifespan. And um, the research really shows, in my own personal experience, that we have to 
um, not only model, but create situations where you're learning the skills that are in the real world. So in other words, if you're learning future thinking, um, which affects academics, planning, you know, getting gas so you don't run out, that it is a skill being built and facilitated in, in real life situations, not in, in a vacuum. And that we also have to support kids, you know, with checklists and reminders and, you know, play better plan lessons. And then at some point we have to allow them to practice and generalize. Um, and it's that practice that actually makes it stick. Um, so it's absolutely something that can be built. And the more we allow them to um, sort of develop and then we retrench a little bit and we allow those, those things to be worked on by the child and not us facilitating everything they do, the more they're going to develop those skills. Uh, when we talked about a play being fundamental and helps uh, develop uh, social skills of children, uh, Caroline, uh, when we think about unstructured play, uh, what are we talking about exactly? Not just um, you know putting them um, in, in activities outside of school, but how, how do you again do you promote that uh, within your uh, child's schedule? Absolutely. I think when a child is um, in structured situations, it's, you know, soccer, it's guided, right? It's when you're, um, you're guided by an adult and an adult is intervening. So by unstructured, what I mean is um, play in the backyard where a bunch of kids are running around and they're inventing their own games and you are not the puppeteer. You are not facilitating. Um, and how to bring that to their lives is, you know, we are a playdate society now. We are not all living in, um, you know, neighborhoods where everybody is the same age. And so one of the things we can do as parents is have kids over, um, bring them to parks, bring them to opportunities where they can play and then not to, you know, be the, the game maker. Let them work things out between them and create time and space for that. But what happens if that uh, play date, so to speak, doesn't go as planned and uh, a parent uh, sees their child still struggling and and not, uh, you know, having fun? I mean, again, how, how um, should parents uh, be interacting with their children where they're not hovering? Absolutely. So in Wild No Play With Me, I talk a lot about this very dilemma because everybody who's listening to this intently is in that dilemma, right? The play dates are not going well and they're and they're trying to figure it out. And what I have is a system to teach skills and guide and to give the child sort of a single mission for the play date of a behavior that you're working on, like, you know, taking deep breaths or sharing something when they don't usually, or, you know, I have kids who literally even dictate every choice that's made on the play date. They literally tell the other kid what juice box they can have. And, you know, that doesn't go over. So we're giving the child a mission. We're stepping back. And then there's actually um, ways to then after debrief about the play date and continue to grow working on those skills for next time. And I also give a lot of tips around how to pre-plan the play date a little more so you're choosing a climate and environment and a, and a friend who is gonna make it 
so that the child can practice these skills. Um, you know, end of the day, they're exhausted. They may not be able to produce what we're asking them to. Did you ever run into, uh, you know, parents who, you know, everyone wants the best for their child, Caroline, uh, but there's also uh, the added stress of uh, many parents wanting their kids to be academically successful and to get into uh, the school that the parents think is going to give them a better chance at employment, uh, maybe go to the alma mater of the family. And so how do they balance all of that? Because, you know, oftentimes parents can add a lot of stress to a child's life. Absolutely. You know, I went to Trinity right there in Connecticut, and I would love my children to go to Trinity. But um, I also know that um, we know that a lot of the academic stress we are putting on children is not resulting in them actually being more successful. It's resulting in them being um, stressed out and, and actually some pretty negative mental health consequences. And I think the fact is, is that if you are building these life skills, and, and I think social skills and these academic skills are life skills, just like changing a tire, um, your chances of actually helping them to be um, able to complete the academic work are greater because you know, you're not going to college with them. You're not going to their first job with them. Um, and so we want to give them opportunities. If you facilitate everything, um, you know, I always joke, I already went to high school, so I don't need to go back. <laughs> you know, if you facilitate everything, then they're not really learning. And I think um, we as parents have to, um, you know, take a breath and realize that um, we're trying to build life skills, not um, make sure everything is perfect. My guest today is Caroline McGuire, author of the book, Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. Uh, Caroline, you spend time in your book really delving into brain science so that uh, readers understand, uh, you know, the factors that cause kids to be left out. We mentioned, you know, these skills, these executive function skills. But for parents who really are kind of on the fence about, again, wanting to intervene, you know, what are some red flags? Is it really intuitive or... What, what's some advice that you can give for parents uh, that they can look at their child and see, you know, maybe there needs to be some intervention? So if a child is perpetually left out, they're not invited, um, that is one red flag. The other red flag is that you're hearing from schools, coaches, teachers, that they aren't able to join a group, they aren't able to fit in. The other red flag is that I have seven things everyone needs to be able to do socially in the book. And... Um, parents can look at those seven things, and they're things like reading the room, being adaptive, um, you know, meeting people halfway. And if your child isn't able to do these, you know, in an age-appropriate way, the same as their their peers, um, then those are red flags because ultimately, um, these are the things that we have to be able to do in order to be in the workplace, in order to, you know, work in a group as adults. So I would encourage parents to understand that, you know, some kids just don't come to this naturally. And if you if you find that your child cannot um, meet new people, make friends, join a group, work with others, um, then they just need some help with this, just like they need help with tying their shoes or uh, learning to ride a bike. 
And for the parents or parent uh, who uh, may be an introvert and it might be hard for them to even reach out to another parent to, to try to schedule a play date to help their child, I mean, is that the time to bring in a professional? And what's your advice to, to parents? Well, I think parents always put the oxygen mask on first. Um, many introverts have friends and have wonderful, rich lives. Um, and sometimes um, it is something where um, they are really able to facilitate that. I don't want to want to say that they can't. And I think when we are looking at our children's well-being, um, some of it is if this is hard for you, then to work on that for yourself and to work on facilitating that and making that easier. And actually the information why will no one play with me can help parents as well and has helped many, many parents. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing is if you're aware of these struggles for yourself, then as you work on them with your child, you'll be growing as well. Uh, we heard from someone on Facebook. Uh, Katie writes, I have a middle-aged relative with no social skills and a complete lack of ability to read social cues. If there had been diagnoses when she was young, she would probably have been diagnosed with ADD and receptive information deficits. Uh, what kind of interventions are available for adults who have difficulties with social interactions? You know, it relates to my previous question. Again, your book focusing on how parents can help their children, uh, but for people who have adults in their lives that are also struggling, what can you tell them? Well, I absolutely think that the adult struggle is real and is there. And um, it is so important. And um, there's a few things. One, um, on my website, carolinemaguireauthor.com, I do have um, some things for adults. My intention is that book two will be for adults. Um, there are also opportunities through a group that I work with where we have adult social skills groups. We have adult virtual social skills groups um, at ADD.org. Um, the other thing I want to say is that adults can use the learnings from um, something like why will no one play with me because I do use these lessons. They just don't have cute visuals, you know, with adults. And I think adults tend to get very overwhelmed. So I would encourage any adult who's trying to work on this to set a, a mission. And that mission might be one thing that they're going to work on. Um, and every time you enter or exit a new place, that's your cue to try to be more tuned in. Um, but it really does sometimes take um, an adult following lessons like this and working on it. And it's totally possible. I've had clients who are 60. I've had clients who are six. They all can change. Carolyn McGuire is a parenting coach and author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. Uh, Caroline joined me today via Skype. Thanks so much, Caroline. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about why it can be difficult to make friends as an adult and what we can do about it. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 22nd, 2019.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio is hosting a coffee break at local coffee shops across Connecticut to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Join me and the Where We Live team at Silk City Coffee in Manchester, Connecticut, Tuesday, December 10th. We can't wait to meet you. Check out Where We Live's Facebook page for more information. Now, adults have trouble making friends, too. What was your experience after graduating college, perhaps moving away from family and a home base where many of your friends still live? Making friends as an adult is kind of like dating. Does that ring true? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. That clip you just heard comes from a recent series of episodes from NPR's Life Kit podcast. They were hosted and reported by my next guest, Julia Furlan, host and reporter for NPR's Life Kit podcast. Joining us today from NPR's New York studios, Julia, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. We're excited for this conversation. So (laughs) why focus in on adult friendship? You know, I just think that it's something that we do. We have friends from the time we're little. We have friends, uh, you know, throughout our entire lives. And it, it, as I was, like, approaching the topics that I wanted to talk about on LifeKit, I was really interested in stories about friendships because they change, we change, and we don't always necessarily address that, you know? And I think um, it was a good time to look at that. There's different phases in adulthood. So when is it the trickiest to to make friends, Julia? Well, one of our one of our guests, Heather Haverleski, who is a wonderful advice columnist, called uh, she has a column called Ask Polly. She said she said that the 30s are the dark times. It's like the dark upside down of of friendships because <laughs> people are you know uh, splitting off, getting married, having kids, um, and I mean it seems and trying to achieve in their careers, all of that stuff. Um, and I, I feel like that that sort of tracks. I think that there's lots of uh, when, you know, when everyone is underslept and trying to do too many things, it's it's hard to keep your friendships as a the central priority of your life. And what do you do when you don't like your child's parents, friends, parents? That's actually <laughs> if they're listening. I'm not talking about you specifically, but uh, again, when you're stuck in these social situations, the birthday parties every weekend and you see the same parents, but maybe they don't really have the same interests that you do. Yeah, I think that one of the things that the previous guest, Caroline, said that, that really rang true was that parents need to put their their oxygen mask on first. And sure, yes, you might have uh, social situations that you don't want to go to. You might have to go to the birthday parties. You might have to stand awkwardly next to the punch bowl with someone that you would otherwise not be talking to. That makes a lot of sense. But I think that the adults, as adults, as I reported these stories, Uh, The thing that kept coming to the surface was that we need to be able to prioritize friendship as a real necessary existing thing in our lives, no matter what else is going on. It doesn't matter if you're a parent. It doesn't matter if your job is completely intense. It doesn't matter what else is going on. If you uh, want to have friendships just like that that um, the um, the woman at the top of the show said, uh, friends are like dating. You know, you have to sort of prioritize it. And I think that there is value to that. And I think that we we as a society should sort of like make a little bit more space for, for people to say like, oh, I'm going to go and hang out with my friend, even though I have a three-year-old and a, a full-time job, you know? So if you uh, make plans with this new friend and you hang out and you realize, you know, it's just not going to work, don't feel bad they don't call him again? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a it, it's <laughs> sometimes it's it's hard to like gauge exactly what's going on, but like there is a, one thing that I think is helpful is um, there's a, a woman named Shasta Nelson who has a, a book called Frentimacy, and she talks about basically that like. F- that vulnerability and consistency should increase at the same rate. So basically, like, um, as you see somebody consistently, you should be opening up to them in a vulnerability way. Um, And that sort of the way that those two things go up together is something that I think people um, it just makes it very clear. You got to be vulnerable if you want to have a friend. That's 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 how it goes. You know, I like that you brought up friend intimacy because she also talks about the friendship triangle. Maybe that'll help uh, listeners really uh, uh, grasp what we're talking about here if we think about it as a triangle. Right. So the bottom of the triangle is positivity. And positivity doesn't necessarily mean that you feel great every, you know, that like everything that you do with this one friend is like positive. It means that when you come away from being with that friend, you have that like, oh, okay, good. I'm po- I feel good about this. You know, like, uh, oh, we had a really nice conversation. Um, you know, we had a really nice coffee talk. I feel like I understood and listened to. And then the other two arms of the triangle are vulnerability and consistency. And those two things are the sort of like basis of the triangle that will lead to friend, friend intimacy is what Shasta Nelson calls it. Great book, great TED talk, really recommend it. Another tip that you have, again, uh, Julia Furlan, host and reporter for NPR's Life Kit podcast. Uh, you know, people like you more than you may think. And to get yeah. out of your head uh, thinking that, uh, oh, gosh, maybe they don't really like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everybody has this sort of inner monologue sometimes where they're like, you know, you, you have a conversation and then you come away from that conversation. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I just, you know, I sounded so silly. I didn't say the right thing, blah, blah, blah. There is research, actual like psychological research uh, done by one of the the sources on the show or one of the guests on the show, um, Jillian Sandstrom. That it's called the likability gap, and basically, people like you more than you think they do. Um, and that that little tiny bit of research maybe can counteract the negative voice in your head when you talk to someone. Um, it basically says. When you talk to somebody, the chances chances are people are enjoying that conversation and you don't need to like walk away and beat yourself up about it later. I referenced uh, you know, some of us move away from our hometowns and a lot of the people we went to school with, and it can be a struggle uh, to make uh, n- new friends in a new city. And so mm-hmm. uh, the next step is, uh, you know, if you have a, if there's something you really like to do, maybe find a new hobby and that might be yeah. where you find new friends. I mean, it's so funny because it's like very much like grandma advice. It's like what your grandma would tell you, like, why don't you take up a hobby? But you know what? It works. Um, I think that there's there's two things to that. You should follow the things that you always already like to do. Do you like cooking? Are you into book clubs? Do you want to um, learn more about the brain? I don't know. There are lots of different things that you can do. And you follow that thing that you already like to do. And you give it some time. I think that the thing, like, there's find a hobby, yes, but you also have to sort of, like, find some consistency with it. So I would say don't just go one one time, once a month, you know, for two months or something. You should take whatever it is, and if you want to make new friends, you have to go a couple of times. And maybe the first time is sort of awkward, but you the second time is going to be a little bit less awkward and more and more. And that sort of like consistent dedication is also an important part of the of the like find a hobby kind of thing. 
Uh, our tech producer, Kion Wolf, suggests meetup.com, even Facebook groups. What do you think about those strategies? Oh, absolutely. I think that we we didn't focus on online stuff um, in the episodes, mainly because it's like such a different, it's such a rich environment. It was like so big and there are so many different ways to find people. But there are, yes, there's there are apps, meetup.com. You can find a meetup in your in your area about basically, you know, all different kinds of things. Um, and there's also a, an app called Bumble BFF, where it's basically like, a you know, it's it's like a dating app, but it's for friends. Um, and I think that there if I could do more episodes, I would definitely focus on online communities because there is such a rich and beautiful environment of, of you know, friendships that go from online and then they become real friendships. Julia, we're almost out of time, but we got to talk about the breakup. How do we do oh, it? God. Treat it like an actual breakup is the is the advice from a lot of the reporting that I got. Um, basically, you know, address the address the thing, address the rift, um, make it sort of explicit, but not necessarily. You know, it doesn't need to be something where you're like, I will never speak to you again. But you can just say like, I feel our friendship is changing. Um, I want to address it. And I think I think we need to, you know, move into a different sort of version of this friendship where instead of texting all the time where, you know, we speak, you know, once every couple months. And that's that's sort of like what we're going to do. Or I think we're, I think it's time to break up as friends. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's awkward. I don't I I, I haven't done it yet. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, Julia Furlan, again, is host and reporter for NPR's Life Kit podcast. I feel like we have a connection. Julia, you want to be friends? Listen, oh, my God, I would love to be your friend. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. Okay, it's done. All right, we're going we're to hang out. We're going to find each other on Facebook. Uh, thanks it. to Lydia Brown for producing today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.